From Brown Cow Studios in Montana, this is News Nerds. My guest this week is Lisa Napoli. We'll spend almost half an hour with her today. She's a former journalist who worked at the New York Times, CNN, Marketplace, and other prominent news organizations. After her career in journalism, Lisa became the author of four books, two of which we'll be talking about today. Her most recent book is Susan, Linda, Nina, and Koki, the extraordinary story of the founding mothers of NPR. We're celebrating 50 years of NPR on this week's episode. Also, Republicans have voted to oust Congresswoman Liz Cheney as the chair of the House Republican Conference after she voted to impeach Donald Trump in his second impeachment trial. We'll have a story on that. All of this coming up on News Nerds, episode 45. I'm your host for this week, Ezra Graham. After House Republican Liz Cheney voted to impeach former President Donald Trump, along with nine other Republicans in the House, House Republicans voted to remove her from her role as the chair of the House Republican Conference today. The closed-door meeting lasts only about 20 minutes before Republicans form their final decisions. After she was ousted from her role, she spoke to reporters, quote, I will do everything I can to ensure that the former president never again gets anywhere near the Oval Office, unquote, she said. After Cheney was elected to the House in 2016, she quickly began to gain popularity. Occupying the role of conference chair, Cheney was the third-ranking Republican in the House of Representatives. After the vote on Wednesday, Cheney still plans to run for re-election in the 2022 midterm elections. Quote, The nation needs a party that is based upon fundamental principles of conservatism, and I am committed and dedicated to ensuring that that's how this party goes forward, and I plan to lead the fight to do that, unquote, she said. After a meeting with prominent lawmakers and the president, House Republican leader Kevin McCarthy told the media, quote, I don't think anybody is questioning the legitimacy of the presidential election. I think that is all over with. We're sitting here with the president today, unquote. His remarks come after criticism that House Republicans' motive for ousting Cheney was to defend former President Trump's claims of election fraud in the 2020 election. McCarthy wasn't the only prominent Republican to remark on Wednesday's vote. In a statement, former President Donald Trump said that Republicans in the House, quote, have a great opportunity today to rid themselves of a poor leader, a major Democratic talking point, a warmonger, and a person with absolutely no personality or heart, unquote. Later, in another statement, he called Cheney a, quote, bitter, horrible human being, unquote. Let's now go to my interview with Lisa Napoli. She's a former journalist who has worked at the New York Times, MSNBC, CNN, and more news organizations, and now she's an author, currently of four books. We'll talk about two of them on this week's interview, the first of which is Radio Shangri-La, what I discovered on my accidental journey to the happiest kingdom on earth, and her most recent book, Susan, Linda, Nina, and Koki. The Extraordinary Story of the Founding Mothers of NPR. 
Lisa Napoli is a former journalist, and she is the author of four books now. Most recently, the book about NPR's founding mothers. Welcome to News Nerds. Thank you so much for having me. So you wrote a book about uh, Bhutan, which, for listeners who don't know, is a country in Asia. I did not know about Bhutan before I read this, but um, what you knew before you met uh, the attractive man at the party was uh, that it was television was banned and that it was the happiest place on earth. So you didn't really know much about it, but you got a very um, exciting invitation to volunteer at a radio station in Bhutan, which was funded by the sale of the crown princes or the king's BMW and was gifted to the youth of Bhutan. It was called Kuzu FM. Mm. Why was so? Why was Kuzu so important to the Bhutanese? I mean, in the book you say that a woman would not eat because Kuzu was off the air because of a storm. Why was that so important to the Bhutanese? Well, imagine living in a place where the only connectivity that you have to other people is the people you can actually see. And Bhutan used to be like that. Up until not very long ago, uh, there were no mass communications. Certainly what we're doing over Zoom wouldn't happen. But even phones, the infrastructure wasn't there for phones. And there was, as you pointed out, no television very little radio. If you had a, a, if you could afford a fancy radio that might catch a signal from far away, maybe then you could hear something. So the idea that this radio station was starting was so exciting to people. They'd never heard other voices like their own, except when they were sitting across from someone who they knew. And so the idea that this radio station started and it played music and uh, there were some news broadcasts and there were conversations and that you could be working the fields and all of a sudden this voice and this coming out of this little radio sounded like you was a revolution. And so people just got so addicted to it. It was really the only thing that they could listen to because uh, there wasn't that much else. Uh, there wasn't anything else when it started. So I got to work there at its, at its beginning. And it was so exciting because you could see people of every age just becoming completely obsessed with it. The way people are obsessed with movies or sports or weather or whatever they are obsessed with. But everybody together was obsessed with it. And that was so interesting to me. You visited Bhutan uh, and you were kind of uh, a little bit scared because eggs were so expensive and nuts were so expensive. And um, that was not something that Bhutanese really had in their everyday life. But as an American, we have these things each and every day. And that step from American culture to Bhutanese culture must have been very large for you especially with some of their uh, th their th foods that you might not have known about and I did not know about before you went to Bhutan and before I read the book, like Doma, which was basically the equivalent to tobacco. And it left the, the, the 
people who use DOMA, their mouths kind of red. Mm -hmm. How was, yeah, how was that really, how was that step uh, challenging for you and then sometimes rewarding for you? It's a great question. I think a lot of people like to go on vacations, but they don't like to get out of their comfort zone. They want to eat the same foods. They want to you know, listen to the same music and they don't want to disrupt their lives too much, even if they do travel. And I've never been a, a tourist. I've never been able to afford to go on trips like that. This trip was different. And this was so radically different to step into this other world and to look different than everybody else around me. Uh, and, and like you say, to crave certain foods and, and not be sure where I was going to get the foods I needed and wanted was really exciting. And it's really good, I think, to get you know, just like stepping out of the normal routine that you have every day is really good to shake things up every once in a while. And this for me was a monumental shaking up because I had never imagined that, you know, I knew that the, the rest of the world wasn't exactly like a major city like Los Angeles where I live. But, you know, and of course I knew that there are different races of people and that, you know, certain people ate certain foods more than others, but I didn't ever think about it quite the way I did when I was sort of dropped into this other world. And I was the minority, I was the outsider, and I had to observe everybody's customs and, and rituals. And it was wonderful. It was jarring, but it was really, really, really wonderful. You responded to the email that you got inviting you to Bhutan almost immediately, you said, before you really thought about it. Um, what did you think after you said yes? Well, I thought, I have a job. <laughs> I have to get permission to go to help start this radio station that this guy who I'd met briefly at a party asked me uh, in the aftermath of meeting, you know, would I do it? But I was happy to do it. Um, I, I figured I'd figure it out because I'd never had an invitation like that before. It never, no one had ever asked me to do anything like that. And, you know, sometimes something happens for you where you're just ready for it. Maybe before you might've been afraid, but sometimes somebody throws something at you and you're just, yeah, whatever it takes, I'm going to do it. And uh, for me, it was so exciting because I was stuck in this routine and this rut and it just jolted me out of that. You talk about this a little bit in the book, but how are Bhutanese youth different from the typical American idea of childhood? Well, they're, they're not so much now, but when I first went 12 years ago, they were very different because they couldn't do what you can do, which is access the internet and, and see all kinds of things. Um, even though you don't watch television, there are, of course, many kids in this country who do nothing but watch television. And in Bhutan, that was just not an option because there was no television. Television had started a little bit before I came there. Uh, and people were getting obsessed with sitting in front of a television set. And all it, it's not even just that you're sitting in front of a television set and you're mush. It's that you're having all these messages pumped at you that you have to look a certain way or that you have to have certain stuff in your house, otherwise you're not good, or access to certain cars or things. And that was just starting up in Bhutan when I went there. So I would meet people, mostly I was dealing with people who were in their you know, 
late teens, early 20s. And they were the first generation to grow up with that message, that commercial message being pumped at them all the time and Hollywood coming at them. So they were different than their parents who were my age, who hadn't had that and didn't think about, oh, I'm not gorgeous enough or I'm not, I don't have enough stuff in my house. They were perfectly happy with what they had. Whereas the younger people were just starting to get that message. And, and you know, they, they now are all on Facebook and they all have the iPhone or the you know, smartphone and they're just connected all the time. And that's really, you know, making them more homogenous, more like kids anywhere else. How does, how has Bhutan change since you went there in the late 2000s? That's one way. That's one way. The internet is more widely, widely available. Cell phones are more widely available. Villages that when I was there were just getting wired for electricity now have it. Um, roads, there are more roads. So there's more places that people can access that they couldn't before. Um, more, more kids leave for school now than they ever had before. And it's not the way in our country when they do, they might go to a fancy boarding school. It was more that if they left and they went to India, the country next door, um, they were able to, to get better educations. Um, but I think, you know, number one, it, it's just that there's this passive system now that we have terribly too, which is, you don't get up and go somewhere to see someone. You talk to them like this. This is all pre-pandemic, of course. So I think everything, you know, life is really different now. Uh, there are more tourists who come in and that changes things. There's still restrictions though. Just like you've probably seen changes in your area. Certainly, certainly your older, you know, your elders have how the areas changed with people coming in. Bhutan is that way too. More and more people coming in. It's still hard to just go live there. But that, that changes, tastes change because of that food tastes. Um, yeah, yeah. You were working at a radio, uh, you, a career in radio when you left for Bhutan and previously you had worked at the New York Times, CNN and other news organizations as a journalist. How did traveling to Bhutan, the happiest place on earth, lift some of that weight of reporting the news, watching 9-11 over and over again, watching rockets explode over and over again just to get that story in time for the deadline. Lift some of that weight off of your shoulders. Well, you know, it made me see that the world didn't revolve around me. And I don't like to think that it did before. I, I never, I, I, I hope I'm not a self-involved person, but by going somewhere else that was so different, it just made me start to think about my place in the world differently and how I could interact with people um, or more expansively. Like I wanted, I didn't want to just be stuck in an office where I was seeing the same people every day and calling people up on the phone to, to report a story. I wanted to be out in the world in a way that I'd not been able to be in a really long time. Plus it made me you know, when you meet, they always say that this is true. If you take people from conflict zones and throw them together with each other, they see that you're human, I'm human. It doesn't matter that you're from one side and I'm from the other, or that our families are from other sides. We all see that we're human 
and it just it just made the world seem both bigger and smaller all at once. That was your first book out of the four that you've written now. Let's go on to the most recent one that you have written just in April, I believe. Yes. Um, and this is kind of a question that overlaps with both of those books, uh, which both involve radio and then the importance of radio. How is radio imp important to you? Well, you know, par partially in Bhutan, I got to see the power of radio, like we were talking about before, for people who hadn't had access to it before, and, and that they could be in touch with their community in a different way than they could when all they could do was just talk to the people who was, were in their immediate orbit. Um, in writing this book, I got to see the power of how radio grew over the course of my lifetime. And that's really interesting. I grew up with my father. You were sharing with me before that you listened to the radio at night sometimes or in the mornings. My father grew up with a radio next to his head always. He just loved listening to the radio. And yet when I was a kid, it wasn't this whole infrastructure that NPR has that's all over the country now just didn't, you know, wasn't something we listened to. And, and to learn the history of it was really interesting. And that it didn't start out of the gate as this really famous network with people like Nina Totenberg. It started with very few people listening, with very little budget. Nobody was really sure what was going to happen to it. It was, a, it was a classic startup. You know, you hear about the Silicon Valley garages and guys who put things together in a garage and then they become billionaires. That's what NPR was in the earliest days. It was just a, a handful of people with a couple of microphones trying to figure out what the next generation of radio was going to be. And it's such a powerful medium because it doesn't cost a lot of money. It's not like television. You don't need fancy equipment. You don't need to be dressed up for it. You just can do it. And, and in doing it, you're pumping out sounds that, that can really turn people's minds on or, or in, inspire them. So it's really fun to, to look at and talk about radio and how it is such an easy medium, and yet it's a really powerful medium. And it made, both these books made me really appreciate that even more. So the book, if I have not said this, is Susan, Linda, Nina, and Koki which is about the founding mothers of NPR, which is different than many organizations that had founding fathers. How was that different, especially in the 1970s when women's rights were not as well recognized as they are now in 2021? Right, they were just becoming recognized in the 70s. And before the 70s, it was very unusual for women to have their voices on the air, either on television broadcasting or on radio broadcasting. And so these women were able to get jobs at this new place, partially because they were willing to work for very little money, um, but also because they just needed people who were willing to work and they didn't care. They couldn't afford, they being NPR, couldn't afford to discriminate. And so these women were willing to work and they were willing to work for less money and they were willing to work twice as hard and many, many hours. 
And so they became known as the founding mothers. In particular, Susan Stamberg was the founding mother because she was the first voice that people recognized associated with the network. She wasn't the first host, but she came in in 1972, a year after they went on the air. And she was so good that all across the country in, in small towns and big ones, people had never heard anybody like her on the radio before. She was just conversational. She was warm. She was asking questions that men didn't ask when they were behind the microphone. And so she really redefined the sound of, of radio. And, you know, the other women, and I'm, I talk about in the book did too, but she was the host. So she was the predominant voice. So there is also a founding father of NPR named Bill Seymourin, who you know. What was so unique about him and his decisions while forming the new organization? So Bill Seymouring was a really interest is still a really interesting and wonderful person who who people adore. He uh, he had come from Wisconsin to Buffalo and worked in radio in both places, and he was really committed to racial justice at a time when it wasn't common that white people, you know, advocated for black people in the workplace. Uh, that's a huge generalization, but he really wanted to reflect the United States better and differently than commercial broadcasting had. And so when he was the first program director for NPR, he really was open to the idea of hiring people who weren't seen or heard on regular newscasts. And that included women and minorities. And he even tried to hire a black co-anchor at the very start of NPR, which was incredibly, now it sounds like, okay, great. But then that was so unusual. Uh, actually, Ted Turner in, in 1980, uh, his, his organization, CNN, was revolutionary because it did hire an African-American co-anchor or, or anchor at, out of the gate. But in 1971, it was unusual um, to hear people of color deliver the news. And Bill Seymouring really wanted to make sure that the news wasn't just news from New York and Washington and Los Angeles, that it was from all across the country and that it reflected the diversity of the United States. So he was a very warm, innovative, uh, and inclusive person before that was something that we talked a lot about in the workplace. So NPR has a mission statement, which is well remembered by many employees and can even be recited by many. We are celebrating 50 years of NPR in this uh, NPR month that we have here at News Nerds, first with Bill Curtis, then with BJ Lederman, and now with Lisa Napoli, whose new book explores that 50 years. What was NPR's mission, mission statement and how did it play into the organization's beliefs? Well, you know, mission statement was created, his mission statement was created because they just were trying to figure out what NPR was. When it first started, it wasn't clear, would it be music and entertainment? Would it be educational, uh, like, you know, college classes that anybody could listen in on or people reading books? That's what educational radio was before. And Bill, wasn't so sure exactly what the program would be, but he, but he did know what he wanted was to reflect humanity. 
and to not be in service. I, I can't memorize. I, I don't have it memorized, but he was, he was committed to it not being all about commercialism. So commercial broadcasting had one main goal, which was to be able to sell ads and make money. And public broadcasting's mission was different than that. And he was deeply committed to the whole idea that it didn't have to be, it shouldn't have to be, oh, we're not going to put this show on because no ad advertiser will ever sponsor it. He was deeply committed to the concept of, of creating interesting, innovative uh, programs that, that reflected the culture, like we were just talking about, but also that didn't necessarily fit into a box. But it all went back for him to humanity, which is not something you hear a lot of broadcasters talk about. Sadly, I don't mean to laugh at that, but it's, you know, especially in the 70s, you know, a lot of violence on television and uh, a lot of stuff that wasn't, wasn't humane. Um, so after 50 years of NPR, how do the present women of NPR, um, some of whom have still been, are still here, like Nina, um, and occasionally Susan, how do they play into the current um, story of NPR? Well, you know, it's amazing and unusual that women or anybody uh, can keep a job in the media in their 70s and 80s as they are. Uh, they are, of course, singular superstars. So it's they have no problem with job security because they're so well regarded. And now I think, you know, Nina still reports on the Supreme Court and justice issues all the time. But I think that Susan and Linda and and to an extent Nina too recognize that their their job at this point is to remind people uh, what public radio that that public radio wasn't always around, that women weren't always accepted on the air, and that the next generations um, you know should be committed to the same values that, that have directed NPR all these years, not to put words in their mouths, because we'll see if they'll talk to you and what they'll say. But they, they are deeply, you know, in love with radio and what the power of radio is and has been, and that they helped create. They, they recognize that they were on this cutting edge, and I think they're proud of that and humbled by it. And, um, you know, it's, I, I'm not quite at that age yet, and I certainly haven't had the impact that they have, but I can see how exciting it must be for them to look at what NPR became, because in the early days, it was never clear that it was going to, you know, when Nina Totenberg showed up in 1974, she didn't think, oh, I'm going to spend the next 50 years of my life here. She just was a young woman looking for a job, and she got one. And I, I'm sure that Susan and Linda didn't, and Koki, who's now deceased, I don't think any of them thought that when they showed up. They just were happy to have jobs doing what they love to do. You opened the book with a story about Koki Roberts, who passed away in 2019, but continues to be remembered in NPR history. Why did you, uh, why did you start the book with that that the story of Koki Roberts and eventually how she passed away in 2019. You know, it's interesting. When you write history, you want to go back in time just far enough to set the scene 
before you go really far back in time to do the backstory. It must be some sort of literary device that sounds pretentious. But so for me, because Koki was so famous and you know, arguably to the mass population, the most famous of the four of them and the most, you know, Nina people love and adore and Ruth Bader Ginsburg and all of that. Um, but but Koki was on television and wrote books and was super, super, super famous. Plus she was deceased. She had died just a couple of years ago. And so to me, to set it up by showing that this woman who became this huge superstar um, on TV, best-selling author, radio, uh, and, and how up until the very last minute of her life, she was so passionate about her work that she was doing it. To me, that was a really poignant way of setting up that, you know, here's this woman, you may be familiar with her. She was super famous. She worked until the minute she died. And now let me explain to you that she wasn't always super famous. And how did she get to be famous? I'm, I love those stories. I wonder if you do too, where, where you sort of peer, peer behind something and see how it got to be, how it got made. Because that's so much more interesting than just saying, here's the famous person. I don't care. Like, how did that person get to be famous? That's what I want to know. And so in writing the book, the challenge was you have four women, all of whom are really interesting people. There are different levels of fame today. If I was writing it just for you or just for my mother, who isn't an NPR listener, how do I make it relevant to as many people as possible? And, you know, also I thought it was kind of dramatic too, that she was so sick, but she was just plowing ahead. Whether she was sick or not, she was going to go to work and do her job. And that's a really interesting lesson, I think, for all of us too. So I think those are the various reasons why I started there. And our last question for today is, what do you think is in store for the next 50 years of NPR? Oh, boy. <laughs> That's pressure. Um, I haven't got a clue. But since you asked me, my clue will be, you know, when I, I used to work at the New York Times, when the New York Times went from black and white to color. So it was a it was twenty something years ago, yeah, yeah. They um, they used to only have black print and black and white, and they added color, and of course they went on the web, and so that was a revolutionary time because everybody was who was used to it one way freaked out. NPR is sort of in the same boat right now because old timers love the radio. The newcomers love the podcasts and it's at this growth period. It's like it's teenage years um, in the sense that the world is changing and how we get information is changing. So what it looks like 50 years from now, boy, if I knew I'd go out and invent it. But I do know that, you know, all of the technology is constantly changing and that people will always want to connect and they'll always want great stories. And it may look different than it looks now or sound different than it looks now, but there'll always be people committed to this sort of same thing that, that they've been doing for so long. So I'm looking forward to seeing what you invent <laughs> and then we'll all tune into that. But I don't know how we'll tune into it. Maybe I won't even tune into it. Maybe it'll just come right into my brain or something. I hope not, but. 
Yeah, well, if NPR is in its teenage years, then we must be only six months old. <laughs> well, Lisa Napoli, thank you so much for talking to me about Bhutan and radio, as well as NPR and its 50 years. It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. That's Lisa Napoli. She's a former journalist, and she is now an author, currently of four books. We talked about her first book and her most recent book, which was published in April. It's called Susan, Linda, Nina, and Kopi, which is about the founding mothers of NPR. That's it for this week's episode of News Nerds. On this week's episode, I was your host. I'm Ezra Graham. You can find us on the web at newsnerdspodcast.com. There you can listen to past episodes of News Nerds, Cow Pies, and other News Nerds extras. Also there, please donate to the podcast. That helps us continue to bring News Nerds episodes. You can also listen to News Nerds on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. While you're on those three services, please subscribe to the podcast there, and while you're on Apple Podcasts, leave us a review. We're also now broadcasting on KGVM Bozeman, 95.9 FM, on Thursdays at 5.30. We'll be back next Wednesday for another episode of News Nerds. Thanks so much for listening. Bye-bye.